Good evening. This is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you, bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. State lawmakers had a busy day today voting to allow conversion therapy to continue in Wisconsin and clarifying their proposed cash bail amendment, the Associated Press reports. In the Senate, the Republican majority killed a proposal from the state health department to ban so-called conversion therapy, a discredited practice where therapists attempt to change a person's sexual orientation or gender identity. LGBTQ rights advocates have long decried the discredited practice, saying that the practice can increase the risk of suicide and depression. Last month, the Republican-led State Rules Committee shot down the proposed ban. The Senate's action freezes any attempt to ban the practice until 2025. Also today, both houses of the legislature approved a list of over 100 categories of crime that would be subject to the proposed constitutional amendment, setting new bail standards on the April ballot. The new list includes everything from watching a cockfight to calling a member of a known gang, but excludes failing to report known child abuse. Governor Evers has not indicated if he will approve the bill. Workers at the Capitol Square Starbucks went on strike today ahead of the company's annual shareholders meeting. That's according to Channel 3000 News. The move was part of a national day of action in which more than 100 Starbucks stores across the country participated. The strike comes just one day before the shareholders meeting where they will vote on a resolution calling for an assessment of the company's commitment to workers' rights. The workers are demanding livable wages, consistent scheduling, safer workplaces, and the right to organize without fear of retaliation. Two weeks ago, a federal judge found Starbucks guilty of hundreds of violations of federal labor law and ordered the company to negotiate with the union, reopen stores that were closed in retaliation for organizing, and rehire fired workers. The Madison Fire Department announced the appointment of Bill Sullivan as City Fire Marshal. Before his appointment, Sullivan served as the city's fire protection engineer. The City Fire Marshal manages the Fire Department's <coughs> Fire Prevention Division, which is responsible for fire and elevator code enforcement, community education, and new construction plan review. Sullivan's goals are to examine community risk factors such as fire hazards, emergency preparedness, socioeconomic factors, and emergency response data trends. He also wants to continue to educate consumers about the benefits of home fire sprinklers and how to make home fire protection systems a cost-effective option. Early voting has been open for just more than 24 hours, and already thousands of Madison voters have cast their ballots. According to the city clerk's office, 3,886 absentee ballots were returned to early voting locations across the city yesterday. Additionally, more than 1,300 voters have cast their ballots in person. There are around 193,000 registered voters all told throughout the city of Madison. This year, the city clerk's office issued over 25,000 absentee ballots to voters. Early voting will continue until April 1st. You can find a full list of early voting locations on the Madison Clerk's website. And those are the headlines for this evening. And now on to the rest of the day's top stories.
Last night was the final meeting of the current batch of city alders, as the council will not meet again until after the April 4th election. In the over four-hour meeting, nearly half of which consisted of public comment, the council approved a needed step towards a proposed housing development on Sherman Avenue, began to address looking for ways to help home caregivers, and dismissed old marijuana convictions. WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt rounds up the important issues on the agenda last night. With around two hours of public comment, the current Common Council met for the final time last night before the April 4th election. There, they voted to approve important rezoning for the Filene House to be demolished and converted into new housing, and to approve creating a plan to address the city's current crisis in home health care. The proposed new housing development on Sherman Avenue, on the property known as the Filene House, went before the council for the second time last night. Earlier this year, the property went before the council in an attempt to label the property a historic landmark, due to it once being home to the credit union movement and being the site of a speech by former President Harry Truman. That landmark designation failed in February. Earlier this month, the city's plan commission voted to approve a demolition permit for the filing house under the condition that the building first be professionally photographed and documented to the standards of the State Historical Society. Heather Stroder with the city's plan division says that the plan commission is the final stop for demolition permits unless the building is designated a historic landmark or sits in a local historic district. Last night, the proposed development's developer, Vermilion Development, sought to rezone the property for residential use, a needed step to building an apartment building on the site. As in the past, neighbors opposing the project came out in droves, delivering over an hour of public comment at last night's meeting. Larry Nesper, member of the Sherman Terrace Neighborhood Association, echoed the sentiment of many of those who spoke at last night's meeting, concerned about the lack of bus service near the property. Is it perfect because of the distance residents will have to trek to grocery stores, pharmacies, coffee shops, restaurants, and other services, none of which are reasonable walking distance from 1617 Sherman? Maybe they'll take the bus. You must know that the current number two bus passes this property 18 times a day heading downtown and 18 times a day heading north. Did you know that the rapid the transit network redesign eliminates the number two and substitutes peak only service that starts heading outbound and then loops back? This will not help deter people from using their cars. Under network redesign, the stop near the filing house would only run during peak times. The closest regular stop is on East Johnson, about a 15-minute walk from the filing house. But supporters say that the proposed development not only fits with the neighborhood plans for the property, but will have a significant positive impact on addressing the city's housing crisis. Kira Light, who spoke at last night's meeting, says that building apartments at the site will help bring more young professionals to the downtown area. As a young professional myself, supporting this project means supporting my community by increasing opportunities to connect with others in my age demographic and encouraging growth of population, which leads to new experiences and events for everyone. This benefits not only businesses in Madison, but people of Madison. Despite the hour of public comment, the council unanimously voted to approve the rezoning and had no discussion on the change. The council also voted last night to study and create a comprehensive report on the crisis in home health care in Madison.
According to a recent report from the Wisconsin Assisted Living Association, over 18,000 people with disabilities sought and were denied services for long-term caregivers in Wisconsin last year namely due to a lack of available caregivers. The resolution to create a comprehensive report is spearheaded by District 12 Alder Barbara Vetter, herself in a wheelchair and requires help to get in and out of bed every day. The study, which would be headed by the city's Disability Rights Commission, would look into connecting students from the UW and other higher-level institutions with home caregiver organizations, reaching out to and recruiting folks in diverse neighborhoods, and finding benefits the city can offer home health care workers to entice them to live and work in Madison. District 3 Alder Eric Paulson spoke in support of the measure last night, saying that as Wisconsin's population continues to age, supporting home health care workers will only become more and more important. Uh, this is going to be one of the great challenges of the 21st century, besides environmental issues and uh, equity issues. Helping people is going to be one of the great challenges and reorientating society around less about making things as we've got that more and more out of control and as ChatGPT takes all the jobs, the jobs that aren't going to go away are, are helping people and so many people in society need help. The resolution to begin the study passed by a unanimous vote. The Disability Rights Commission will have until October 1st to submit their findings to the council. Finally, the council unanimously approved a resolution to support the Madison Municipal Courts in their move to dismiss certain marijuana convictions. In 2020, the city decriminalized possession of small amounts of marijuana, up to 28 grams. Last night's resolution supports work that is already being done by the city attorney's office. Earlier this month, the city's courts dismissed nearly 300 marijuana convictions between February of 2019 and December of 2020. That amounts to refunding around $11,000 to those who paid their fines and forgiving around $18,000 to those who did not. District 4 Alder Mike Revere says that because the council and the courts are separate legislative powers, the council could not write a resolution to dismiss the convictions. But through cooperative efforts between the two, he says they were able to utilize a loophole in state law to get the convictions overturned. Technically, under state law, uh, municipal courts can't, quote, expunge a record. So the way that we went around doing this was the city attorney as the prosecutor in Madison Municipal Court moved to dismiss in mass all prior convictions that our court tracking system was able to find uh, over the last few years. And then um, the judge agreed to reopen and dismiss all those cases in mass. Those with marijuana convictions within the applicable window will have their cases dismissed automatically, and the city will send a refund check to their last known address. The city conducted a major overhaul of their court tracking software in February of 2019, which is why cases after that are the only ones automatically dismissed. But Verveer says that those convicted of marijuana possession before 2019 still have options available to have their case dismissed as well. If any of your listeners or anybody uh, received a weed citation by a Madison cop prior to 2019 uh, and were convicted in Madison Municipal Court, they are able to approach the court and ask in the similar fashion of equity here to have their cases likewise reopened 
and dismissed. So folks that were cited under the old ordinances should appeal directly to the Madison Municipal Court and the city attorney as the prosecutor will support the reopening of those individual cases and those refunds likewise being issued. The resolution supporting the court's dismissal of old marijuana convictions passed by a unanimous vote. Also at last night's meeting, the council voted to increase the number of allowable backyard chickens within city limits from four to eight and voted to dissolve the city's task force on government structure, or TFOGS. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. With the spring election now less than two weeks away and early voting already underway, we talk tonight with both of the candidates on the ballot for Alder of District 19. We'll start with Kristen Slack, a professor at the UW-Madison and resident of the city for the last 23 years. Slack spoke with our producer, Nate Weggie, how early this, earlier this week, <coughs> pardon me, about why she decided to run for the seat in her district. The 2023 spring general election is less than two weeks away, and this year there are 14 older districts appearing on the ballot. One of those districts is District 19 on the far west side, containing the Spring Hills and Oakwood Village neighborhoods. One of the candidates running to represent the district is Kristen Slack, who joins me now by phone. Uh, Kristen, thank you so much for talking with me today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Of course. So now just to start, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who are you? Yeah, sure. So uh, I, my name is Kristen Slack, and I've lived in the Madison area for, well, since 2000. Um, I started on the east side, lived in Sputin for a while, and I've been here in District 19 for a little under 10 years. I have four kids and stepkids, ranging in age from 15 to 28, married, and I'm in my 23rd year as a professor of social work at UW-Madison. I also have an ed tech company that I started here in Madison with the help of some of the local resources for entrepreneurs, too. And now, Kristen, why are you running for Alder of District 19 there? A couple of reasons. I um, have a background in policy analysis and program evaluation, and I'm excited to bring a skill set to the Common Council that allows us to dig deeper into the data we're collecting on various initiatives, rigorously evaluate them, bring that information directly to residents as soon as it's available, and also want to improve community engagement and accountability practices at the city. In my district, there's a lot of concern over just not learning about things soon enough, not not knowing what's going on, um, and I think I know how to improve that. Um, I also care a lot about the environment and protecting our natural resources here in Madison. And having the social work background, I also bring this this lens of equity, and I focus a lot of my work on prevention of a number of, of uh, social welfare problems, uh, many of which we're dealing with in Madison. So I bring that background and expertise and network of people who have that expertise to this to this position. Now, Kristen, I want to dive into some of the pressing issues facing Madison here in a moment here, but I want to stick with you for just a moment longer. Uh, sure. What what do you do in your spare time? Yeah, well, I um, I do love to bike. I actually discovered all the wonderful bike trails, especially heading out from Madison, only within the last four or five years. And in the summers and early fall, my family uses them heavily, especially my husband and I. Um, my son is very into biking, and he, he goes with me sometimes, too, my older son. Gardening is a big passion of mine, and cooking, those are, those are three sort of things I love to do when I have the time. 
And now taking a look at the city of Madison as a whole, what do you think are the most pressing issues facing the city that you would want to address? Sure. Well, there's certainly a lot of focus right now on housing and transportation. So that's definitely an issue that will require attention no matter who's in the mayor's seat and no matter who uh, is on the Common Council. Um, I just have some questions, though, about the way we're going about it. And I think we need to put more emphasis on opportunities for home ownership and not just single family homes, but many different you know, types of, of, of home ownership opportunities where people can build equity. We're losing homeowners and home ownership is becoming more unaffordable here. Our population is growing, but we're losing public school K through 12 students. I think there's been a net loss of about 2,000 students over the last 10 years, and 92% of that was in the last three years. We have another projected net loss of about 10% of this school, public school population over the next five years. And, and one of the reasons that people are leaving is because they do want to own a home and build equity and build intergenerational wealth. And I don't think we can ignore that desire and demand from our residents here. Um, and we're putting we're putting relatively less focus on that issue than we are on the rentals. I do think we need to build more rental units. I I would like to see data on how affordable they really are and who's actually benefiting at the lowest income brackets from these new new units. But the home ownership is a big piece. Uh, we have a huge racial wealth gap, and a lot of that is driven by home ownership, but also of course by wages and and income. And so sticking with housing for a minute here, I want to take a dive into a couple specific issues here. Now, looking at the city of Madison, what sort of key initiatives would you like to see here to bring more affordable housing and affordable home ownership to Madison? I think we need to expand our thinking about the models we're looking at for home ownership. Certainly, we've, we've made some progress in this way um, with respect to helping families get educated about the path to home ownership and helping with down payments. But the, the relative size of that item in the budget is, is quite small. I think we could be doing a lot more there. Land banking is another potential solution, especially when we can partner on developments with uh, nonprofits and explore other kinds of home ownership models like townhomes and condos and things like that. So it's not all about single family homes. And then of course, with some of the development going around or centered around the TIF districts, that will be helpful as well. And I support that. But, you know, we're, we're looking at a, a huge stress on our home ownership market. In the last five years, the median home prices have gone up by 33%. That includes condos and townhomes. I've been told that developers just aren't interested in building things other than apartments. I, I'm not convinced that's true. So I'd like to make I'd like to have those conversations and, and see if there are ways to focus more on that investment, that kind of investment, and more development around the school. So we've been putting a lot of attention on these central corridors, um, but we're doing that at, at a time when you know we're seeing huge shifts in the work trends of, of folks. We have a workforce here in Madison that's almost a quarter uh, working remotely, and we're seeing national and local trends of upticks in hybrid work that are here to stay, and all of those things have implications for where people choose to live um, and where businesses choose to locate and, and how we use public transportation. So I would just like to take a pause 
and make sure that the investments we're making going forward and the decisions we're making make the most sense possible, given some of the shifts and the trends that we're seeing. And now another issue that you brought up there is public transit. Now bus rapid transit is set to take into effect next year, and network redesign is set to kick off later this year. How, how do you feel about those public transit projects? I support the bus rapid transit system. I have questions about whether we need to, to do it in the way that we did. If there was a less expensive path to to creating bus rapid transit. I don't know the answers to those questions yet, but hope to learn more about that. The transit network redesign, I have um, had a lot of questions about the process behind that because the city initially pursued a ridership model, which is about maximizing use um, in riders. But the coverage model is definitely the more equitable model just on its face. And, And we've heard and I've heard and many people have heard Uh, the complaints from neighbors and residents around the city that they're losing or having their access limited by the transit network redesign. And the city has responded to some of those things, but there's there's quite a few uh, residents that still feel their needs are not going to be met with this new model. So we'll have to keep working on that, especially with respect to taxi service and other kinds of on-demand transit service for those with disabilities who aren't able to use uh, the bus system or drive a car. That certainly is an area where we need to put more resources. And now I want to take an eye onto your specific district there, District 19. What are a few issues facing your specific district? What have you heard from potential constituents? Sure. A big issue here is protecting the lake, um, improving the safety of our drinking water, and being better stewards of the natural resources and the environment here in Madison. As that's, that's a part of our legacy here. We care about that a lot. I think you know, there's other cities, even here in Wisconsin, that are putting more investment in forward-thinking stormwater management practices that rely on sort of nature-based solutions. There's a new development being added on to uh, the UW, uh, UW Health building here on, in District 19 that's taken a lot of great attention and, and cared a lot about these kinds of issues. And it's an example, I think, of of a a development that's taken a lot of care to do this well, but we could be doing this well in many of our other developments too. Um, Given that, given the impact here in District 19 of the 2018 floods, people are certainly worried about whether we're actually doing all that we can do to curb that, but to do so in a more environmentally friendly way. Safety is also something that comes up a lot when I talk to people. Um, There's You know, the data sort of goes up and down and in different parts of the city, there's been trends in in opposite directions even. So depending on where you live, you may feel more or less safe in the city, but we definitely need adequate resources to address problems um, associated with feeling unsafe. And some of this is quite frankly due to speeding and and reckless driving. Um, Some of it is due to auto thefts and things like that. I believe in on East Washington, there was a, a decline in the number of uh, serious injuries and deaths um, over the last year or so. And one of the things that you can attribute that to is a, is a larger presence of the police on, on East Washington. So working with police, hearing from residents, listening to their concerns, and then trying to put it in context for residents so there, there aren't sort of false assumptions about what's going on with, with the crime rate and different kinds of crime in this district. Um, but certainly people are worried. And so they, you know, that needs to, I need to pay attention to that or whoever is Alden needs to pay attention to that. 
Um, and I'll certainly be listening and learning from residents around what their concerns are. I've been talking with Kristen Slack, who is running in the spring general election for District 19 Alder. Now, that election will take place on April 4th. Kristen, thank you so much for talking with me today. You're welcome, Nate. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us for the second half. We continue our coverage of the candidates running for District 19 Alder with John Yeager, a longtime Westside resident and member of the Wexford Village Homes Association. Yeager spoke with WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt earlier this week about his vision for the future of Madison's West Side. The 2023 spring general election is less than two weeks away, and this year there are 14 Alder districts appearing on the ballot. One of those districts is District 19 on the far west side, containing the Spring Hills and Oakwood Village neighborhoods. John Uger is one of the candidates running to represent District 19. He joins me now by phone. John, thank you so much for talking with me. Oh, and thank you for inviting me, Nate. Of course. So just to just to start here, won't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who are you? Well, I'm John Uger. I was born in Milwaukee and grew up in a rural village of McGuanago where I developed a passion for science and building things. I'm a UW-Madison undergrad and University of Chicago grad. Polly and I have been married for 54 years with three children and three grandchildren. My life has been spent in community service and business. Uh, businesses I have led uh, built affordable homes and energy-efficient buildings across the U.S. and Canada. Founded uh, IOSC in 2016 to share that experience with uh, not-for-profits who want to build uh, affordable housing. I've got projects in Oregon and Vermont right now. I've been a CEO, COO, and CEO of large and small businesses and community organizations guiding them through some pretty tough budget cycles. And I've served uh, on the West Wexford Village Board in District 19 for Nine years. I'm actively engaged in public outreach by the various Madison departments and forming things like the Odana Area Plan and various watershed and stormwater management plans. And now, John, why are you running for Alder in District 19? Well, I'm running for the city council because I believe my years of experience and leadership can contribute really directly to the very issues that uh, my neighbors say are important, affordable housing, climate change, tightening budgets, uh, public safety, transportation, good jobs, equity. Uh, I should add, public safety is incredibly important to me. Every generation of my family since 1870 has been, uh, has included police, firefighters, emergency responders, some giving uh, that last full measure of devotion. Madison today, as I see it, is addressing these issues I've listed with interconnected multi-year initiatives and i'm in broad agreement with those strategies and i want to build on them correct the things that aren't working or producing unintended consequences all the while mindful of our budget limitations which are fairly severe and before we move on to looking at the entire city of madison here just sticking with you for a little while longer john what do you do in your spare time Well, Polly, my wife, says my uh, recreation looks an awful lot like work. Uh, 
Uh, I volunteer at Merlin Mentors and University Research Park helping new startups become successful and generate good-paying jobs. And several years ago, I founded uh, and still serve as secretary of a company that's commercializing a patent to use artificial intelligence to improve ear disease diagnosis. Uh, but seriously, I like uh, biking our wonderful Madison paths, singing in my church choir, and, and of course, visiting my grandchildren. And now you mentioned it a little bit before, but what in your eyes are the most pressing issues facing the entire city of Madison that you would want to address? Well, I, I, I've touched on it, and, and maybe we'll touch on it again, but housing, housing, housing is, is the big thing. It's a crisis right now, and I, I bring, from my experience, quite a few ideas on what we can do about that. I mentioned budget uh, experience, and uh, we've just got this structural deficit. I've heard uh, both the mayoral candidates talk about it in debate, and and it's real. I've spent uh, some time really diving into the uh, budgets for the last couple of years, and it's pretty clear that uh, come around a year or two from now, barring any movement by the state legislature to share some of that surplus they're considering, we're going to have a pretty tight time and have to make some tight decisions, and it's just going to take all of us, the whole community, working together to figure out how to do that. There are obviously public safety issues that are top of my mind, and then a whole host of others, but we've covered some of the really big ones there. Climate change is important, obviously. Resilience and reducing Madison's footprint. And then you mentioned housing there right up top. What sort of <coughs> key initiatives would you like to see here in Madison to to bring more affordable housing to the city? Well, uh, let me just say, building a full range of housing my experience, including affordable housing, it's complicated. So I've, I've found it helpful to think of four basic parts. First, we need to preserve existing affordable housing. That's why I'm delighted that the tentative budget for tax incremental district 51 on the south side contains funding to improve and repair existing affordable single multifamily housing. Second, we need to make sure that our building codes permit the use of the latest cost-saving, safety-improving, climate-responsive technologies. And third and most difficult is increasing density where it makes sense. Rezoning to increase density a little in some areas and a lot where it makes most sense, typically in areas, I think, that are being redeveloped along the major transit corridors is logical. And then the final piece is finance. Let's make good use of Madison's affordable housing fund and the truly innovative use of the different tax credit programs, as we are seeing uh, on some projects. Now, you mentioned uh, transit there, so let's shift over to that now. Now, bus rapid transit is set to take off next year, and network redesign set to start up later this year. How, how do you feel about those uh, public transit projects? Well, I'm, I'm a regular metro user. That's my preferred way to get downtown for meetings, and I'm a strong supporter of BRT. Uh, I think the first piece, the east-west BRT, runs Right through District 19, it made basic economic sense to begin with that element. I look forward, of course, to seeing its benefits, especially as uh, over time, the details of things like the Odana area plan become reality and focus growth along that corridor. And uh, and I also look forward to eventually developing that north-south plan BRT route. Uh, Metro redesign anticipates BRT, but it was also, in my mind, a long-needed review of where users dependent on public transit need to go uh, for jobs, services, etc. And I'm, I'm grateful to the Metro staff, which helped me explain the details uh, to this redesign to my neighbors. It's part of my work on the Wexford Village Board. 
uh, I expect that we will need to reanalyze that routing on a regular schedule. Uh, it just makes sense that those needs are going to change as the city continues to grow. And now I want to turn an eye on to District 19 there. What are a few issues facing specifically District 19? What have you heard from potential constituents? Well, I've heard quite a lot, having beat upon something like 1,750 doors yesterday. I think top of a lot of minds is the impact of the 2018 flood event, which was particularly severe and known to damage it caused in District 19. I was involved, uh, as I mentioned, in developing relevant watershed plans and stormwater management plans, and these are important part of making Madison a climate resilient place. And they're going to take years to put in place. Funding is not going to be available for everything overnight. There are a lot of individually identified projects, but uh, our biggest single need uh, right now is to increase the size of the conduits that carry. Uh, water under High Point Road in the Beltline. It's just a uh, a real structure in the whole watershed system right now that backs everything else up. You know, the West Area Plan was just watched and will include District 19 and a couple of neighboring districts. Uh, it is an update to older long-range plans and will affect uh, housing development, transit, zoning green spaces, and other elements of I guess what we call broadly livability and viability for decades to come. So District 19 has a very wide range of housing from Lakeshore mansions to 900 square foot single family homes and small lots, lots of apartments, some affordable, some not so much. And I want to be sure that District 19 residents are aware of plan details and are informed and engaged in the process as much as possible. Also, quite a few residents have talked about public safety, not just crime levels, which are everyone seems to know are thankfully very low uh, in the District 19 area, but they're concerned about policing priorities. So I've met with uh, the Midtown and Westtown District Police Captains, as well as, since he doesn't live too far from the retired uh, Sheriff Mahoney, to discuss issues and priorities, and I hope to continue those regular conversations uh, if I'm elected. And uh, and I should add, finally, uh, a few residents uh, in very specific areas are concerned about aggressive driving uh, that's endangering pedestrians and bikers and, and other drivers. And I want to be sure that as we continue to develop this Vision Zero initiative, trying to make this a safer place, that we include those high-risk areas in District 19 in our planning. I've been talking with John Uger, who is running in next month's election for District 19 Alder. Now, that election will take place on April 4th. Uh, John, thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, thank you, Nate. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru Rob McClure. Well, with a little more sunshine today than I anticipated, we managed to hit 54 degrees, which is as warm as we've been so far this year. Uh, And actually, a few days longer than that, we hit 55 degrees back on the 29th of December. You might remember that, because that was a record high temperature for that date. So, uh, really, when you think about it, you have to go back to the 10th of November, actually, to find anything comparable in warmth to 54 degrees. So if it seemed uh, delightfully warm to you yesterday, that's probably because we hadn't seen any temperatures like that for uh, essentially four and a half months. 
Incidentally, today marks the final day of what 11 years ago was one of the most anomalous stretches of weather ever recorded in Madison. You might remember this. Nine straight days from the 14th through the 22nd of March with high temperatures between 78 and 83 degrees. 16 temperature records were broken in those nine days. Eight high temperature records and eight high minimum temperature records. And uh, anyway, that just happened to pop into my mind this past Saturday when uh, the wind chills were hovering down near zero. Anyway, nothing uh, so extraordinary as that in uh, either temperature direction lies ahead of us uh, at the moment. Temperatures look to be averaging around or just below normal as we go through the next uh, 7 or 10 days or so. Uh, Given what will generally be a zonal trajectory to the upper winds across the continent with the jet stream running roughly near our latitude or just to the south, that west-east flow pattern, however, will be situated to the south of what will is uh, still a quite cold region of air up over Canada. So there does remain the possibility of seeing a southward dump of some of that Arctic air behind one of the one or another of the passing storm systems that we'll be seeing trekking past us between now and next week. The most serious possibility for uh, getting some really cold air in here looks to be about this time next week, actually, behind a storm that will be passing around Tuesday. Uh, Even then, though, the cold intrusion doesn't look to be uh, terribly long-lived, maybe a couple of days. Between now and then, we'll have a number of systems passing to our south along a frontal boundary that's just now approaching the area from the west as a cold front. You can see it demarcated uh, by the area of clearing behind it. If you happen to look on the visible satellite imagery that's linked on the WORT weather webpage currently, that boundary is going to pass by and lay out southwest to northeast across about central Illinois by later tonight. And a wave passing along at around that time may induce enough lift to uh, throw down a little bit of light snow across southern Wisconsin. After that, the front will be sagging further south towards the Ohio River, so a stronger wave that will be passing on Friday will be confining its precipitation pretty well to the south of us. By Friday night, though, a third wave, which the models have been struggling with and are still divergent upon, will rotate the boundary back far enough north, evidently, that the passing low-level circulation with this wave will end up uh, passing from central Illinois up through maybe uh, northwestern Indiana, perhaps even as far west as Chicago, at least if the Canadian model verifies. This uh, general path, in any event, has the potential to bring us a couple or three inches of snow, and possibly more than that, at least if the stronger and slower and more westward iterations of either the Canadian or the European model verify. Warm ground temperatures will uh, mitigate against too much snow stacking up on Saturday, but we uh, could see some brisk snowfall rates, especially early on in the wee hours of Saturday, going into the, the, the sunrise part of Saturday. Surface high pressure of mixed Canadian and Pacific origin will then be pressing eastward by later Saturday into Sunday. That'll take us back to the low or mid-40s that day. But back to tonight for the details. Uh, Overcast will continue to thin and break from west to east, a little further eastward towards Madison in the next hour or so. Clouds will thicken back in, though, as we go from there forward, with a little light snow or perhaps even some mixed mixed precipitation south of Madison. Falling for a time in the wee hours of the morning, I don't think that'll accumulate to too much, and much of that should be out of the area by sunrise. Temperatures will drop uh, steadily from here forward, past 40 degrees, down into the low 30s on light westerly winds, which will be veering northwest and north and increasing to about 8 to 12 miles per uh, per hour behind the cold frontal passage. 
Tomorrow, sky should uh, gradually lift and break a bit during the day as drier and cooler air works in more deeply over us. Temperatures will return to about 40 or so, despite northerly winds up at 5 to 10 miles per hour, at least given some afternoon sunshine. Partly cloudy skies and lighter winds veering more northeasterly during the overnight will allow temperatures to drop back into the upper 20s. And Friday should see increasing clouds as we go through the day, with temperatures confined to the low 40s by northeast to east winds, uh, increasing to about 10 to 15 miles per hour during the day. The winds are going to be backing more northeasterly again as we go overnight and increase to maybe 12 to 18 miles per hour as low pressure begins to deepen and approach across Illinois to our south. Snow, then, is uh, overall likeliest uh, south and east of Madison, all things considered, Saturday night into, or uh, Friday night into Saturday. Uh, it could also mix up with a little bit of sleet or rain to our southeast, but we're likely to see, in any event, some amount of snow through the city, uh, possibly as much as two to three inches during the overnight into early Saturday morning, with generally lighter amounts than as you go further north and west. Sauk County may not see much snow at all. Temperatures will hold around 30 on northeast to north uh, winds uh, at 12 to 20 miles per hour, uh, gusty by morning, and backing more northwesterly than as we go through the day on Saturday. Snow should work eastward out of the area by midday, I think, if not before then, with skies then clearing later on. Temperatures will reach the mid or upper 30s. We're likely to drop into the mid-20s as northwesterly winds diminish more in the overnight period, especially if we get some uh, persisting snow cover. And we'll be back in the low 40s on Sunday. Uh, it's currently 50 degrees down here at the station on Bedford Street. The dew point temperature is 41. Winds are out of the southwest, fairly light, still down around uh, 3 to 5 miles per hour. Uh, we're overcast currently with a thin overcast up at about 2,000 feet, and uh, the barometer's at 29.87 inches of mercury and fairly steady over the past few hours. We go now to April 1st, 1969, when Madison elected a right-wing Republican mayor. Here's Stu Levitan with tonight's Madison in the 60s. All these come They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, April 1st, 1969. The city elects the decade's second conservative mayor. In the last election of the 1960s, the city continues its ping-pong politics as a battle between two 38-year-old attorneys ends with conservative Republican Bill Dyke ending four years of liberal rule by beating liberal Democrat Robert L. Toby Reynolds. Dyke, who fell 62 votes short of unseating Mayor Otto Feske in 1967, announces his 1969 campaign on January 4th. Two days later, Feske announces he's not running for a third two-year term, a decision he says he made before Dyke's announcement. Reynolds, a strong Feske ally as the alder representing University Heights from 1964 to 68, runs as Feske's heir apparent. After four years of rising property taxes, up 11 mills over Feske's two terms, and growing crime and disorder, Dyke is happy to run against a candidate who celebrates his relationship with the incumbent. The city deserves change, and you can't tell one of these Bobsy twins from the other, he says. Dyke, 
3826 Council Crest is a former aide to Republican Lieutenant Governor Jack Olson, a former Janesville city attorney and a television announcer. He also ran for mayor in 1965 as a strong supporter of Frank Lloyd Wright's Monetarist Auditorium and Civic Center, finishing third out of seven. Reynolds, 2327 Eaton Ridge, is a Madison native and son of a UW professor. He spent five years as head of the Trust Department at Security State Bank before opening his law firm and is senior warden and a lay reader at St. Andrew's Episcopal Church. A leader in Senator Eugene McCarthy's 1968 state primary campaign, he was a delegate to the convulsive Democratic Convention in Chicago that year. Dyke wins the primary with more than 56% in the six-candidate race, beating Reynolds by better than 2-1 to one and carrying 37 of the city's 41 precincts. Reynolds doesn't carry a single precinct, as UW Extension curriculum analyst Adam Sesh, 26, backed by the new leftist Wisconsin Alliance Party, carries the four student precincts. Quirky attorney and clothing shop owner Edward Ben Elson finishes a very weak fourth, followed by two other fringe candidates. The clearest policy difference in the general campaign is in transportation. Dyke wants to build a major highway connector from the east side through the center of the city and says mass transit systems haven't worked, either financially or programmatically. Reynolds is totally opposed to freeways and says the city must buy the Madison Bus Company and do it at once as the first stage to a comprehensive mass transit system. Both candidates say the city is in bad fiscal shape. Dyke blames Fesky for the most expensive administration in city history. Reynolds blames the legislature for legal limits and low state aid. Dyke campaigns on cutting city spending and working with the private sector to generate economic development. Although he doesn't focus heavily on law and order or cultural issue, he does support a Republican bill in the legislature to abolish the UW Police Department and have Madison cops patrol the campus, something Reynolds opposes. And Dyke harkens back to conservative former Mayor Henry Reynolds' go-slow policy on annexation, calling for a good-neighbor policy of cooperation with surrounding towns and a metropolitan approach towards mutual problems and interests. Candidate Reynolds, no relation to the former mayor, says he'll, quote, declare war on the suburbs and continue the fesky policy of aggressive annexations. Reynolds was appointed to the Madison Housing Authority by former Mayor Reynolds and serves on the board of the Bayview Foundation, which is trying to build moderate-income housing in the Triangle Urban Renewal Area. He vows to build 700 units of public housing for low-income families and elderly scattered around the city. A strong supporter of fair housing before it was broadly popular, Reynolds also attacks the lack of diversity in city appointments. Quote, citizen participation is too white, too college-educated, too west side, he says, vowing to appoint minorities and students. Reynolds outspends Dyke $15,000 to $12,000. Dyke's largest contribution is $2,000 from former Mayor Reynolds' Political Action Committee, the Citizens for Better Government. Candidate Reynolds' top donor is broadcast executive and developer Gerald Bartell. Confident after a strong primary victory, Duck Dykes almost all joined appearances with Reynolds. As the campaign winds down, Reynolds narrows the gap. 
until a chaotic city council meeting four nights before the election results in an illegal 52-hour strike by the Firefighters Union. The candidates split the city's 22 wards, with Reynolds taking downtown in the east side and Dyke strongest on the higher turnout west side, particularly his own Nakoma neighborhood. Dyke wins by four points, about 2,000 votes. And the city makes civil rights history that same election day, as Madison native Eugene Parks, 21, becomes the city's first black alderman, representing the campus area 5th Ward. Of the 11 alders from the odd-numbered wards up this year, four stepped down and four were defeated, putting eight new members on the 22-member council. Dyke focuses in his inaugural address on city finances and bringing economic development to the abandoned Truax airfield. He decries, quote, the harm we do daily to our air, water, and land and calls for adoption and enforcement of what he calls a code of environmental control. And while the campaign largely steered clear of hot-button social issues, he declares he, quote, will not reward public tantrums with participation in government. And the new chief executive uses his appointment power to settle some scores and pick some fights. He limits student area alders Parks and Paul Soglin to single appointments that they didn't request and which are not relevant to their districts. He reappoints former Republican County Chairman Stuart Becker to the Police and Fire Commission and appoints Ellsworth Swenson, the alderman Soglin unseated in 1968. For the Madison Housing Authority, no respect for his vanquished foe, but good political instinct. He does not reappoint Reynolds, naming instead Madison native Richard Harris, the African-American director of the South Madison Neighborhood Center, to replace him. Another broadly popular appointment is putting moderate Republican Betty Smith, chair of the Governor's Council on the Status of Women and wife of former Alderman William Bradford Smith, on the Madison Redevelopment Authority. Feske's disappointing spring continues when the Alliance of Cities, which he founded and served as president, rejects his bid to become its full-time executive director. He takes a job selling insurance instead, later serving 16 years as Home Secretary to U.S. Representative Robert W. Kastenmeier, Democrat of Watertown. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-sponsored, mayoral campaign-tracking WORT news team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Aaron. Special thanks to our feature contributor, Stu Levitan. Chuck Kademan engineered the broadcast. Nate Weggy helped produce it. And Shelley Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night.